0: the big dogs the people who can win an entire round it's straight cold hard cash we're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge so lace up those skates stretch those thumbs and get ready to show off your hockey iq in the daily Faceoff playoff parlay challenge sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess
1: the ufc is coming back to canada everybody it's been gone for 10 years now it's back in vancouver at rogers arena and it's going to be a good one saturday june 10th championship fight between Emmanuel nunez and number five ranked contender irene aldana that's not all the former champion charles olivier is taking on the surging number four seed beniel dariush that's going to be a good one. There's some Canadians on the card also. Mike Mallott from Burlington, Ontario. My hometown fighter, Jasmine Yasudafius is going to be fighting, and a couple other Canadians are on the card as well. So check it out. It's going to be a good one. I'll be watching. Tim will be watching Saturday, June 10th, UFC 289. Don't miss it. One, two, everybody thank you for joining us here another episode of dropping the gloves nice friday morning tim how you doing over there in uh north
2: carolina i'm good it's warm it's getting into those hot summer southern summer days but i'm good how you doing you know all right um i mentioned
1: to you a couple days ago about a dumpster fire oh. I, I don't know if you forgot but karma's got away. Of coming back and biting you in the behind, so I have called how many teams and people dumpster fires over the years? Numerous. Arizona Coyotes, Ottawa Senators, Buffalo Sabers—I think got thrown in the mix. <clears throat> Lots of people and things I've called dumpster fires. Well, I came back, Tim. I got a call two days ago, and it was the my neighbor from my lake house up in Northport, Michigan. And he goes, your house is on fire. And I go, what? And he goes, yep, the fire department's there. It's a pretty bad fire. You might want to f- come on up. And I'm just like, start freaking out. And then he goes, actually, no, it's it's in the dumpster in front of your house. Because we're getting it renovated. We had a flood. And so there's a huge 20-foot dumpster in our driveway. One of the big guys that you, you know would see at a job site. I guess it's been warm. There was an aerosol can in there somehow, maybe, and it combusted and it caught on fire. Now you're thinking like a little fire. I'll send a picture, I'll tweet it out. It's a massive fire. Like I'm talking flames 20 feet high, inferno. And you see the firemen just sitting in front of this fire, like, what do we do? Anyways, it was just funny. They put it out. It's Burnt some of the trees in the surrounding area. It was far enough away from the house where it didn't even do much damage. But yeah, it was it's just like what else can go wrong? Big flood, fire. What's it's just like I feel like it's the the plague coming next, the locusts? Or are, are we is it one of those things? Am I, you know, in Egypt, let my people go, Moses? So yeah, it's uh it was definitely interesting. But yeah, I I literally had. A dumpster fire at my house two days ago. And I'm just like, what is going on with my life? Something's not working because I'm just getting hit with stuff left and right. It was funny.
2: Well, it's funny because we already had the plague in the last couple of years. We had the cicadas, which are the locusts. Yeah. So if you start seeing Lake Michigan looking red, then you know you're in trouble. Oh, then I'm just, I'm just gonna give it up. <laughs> the funny thing was, <laughs> you so texted funny. me like, "Hey, remind me to talk about the dumpster fire." And I, and the dubus thing and traveling, it just came out. And I meant, I said the Leafs. Is that what you meant? But you meant, you meant an actual dumpster fire, which is crazy. Glad that no one's hurt. Glad the house is okay. Yeah, things are. Uh, they're not. It's not making it easy for you. No, oh, that's crazy. But anyways, all all is well. Let's get into,
1: I guess, Toronto, right? We'll start there. We'll recap some news, and we'll just do our predictions for the Stanley Cup final, which is happening tonight. Very exciting. I'm excited to get this thing rolling. Brad Treveling was announced as the new GM for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Not a very long search, right? Because Kyle Dubas was let go a little over a week ago. Very expedited. Obviously, there's a time crunch. The draft is upon us. Things are happening. Wheels are moving. You have to make some pretty serious decisions if you're going to be the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And you're going to have to make them quick. This team is at a crossroads, Tim. What do we do? Another year of failure. Yes, they win a series. But still, the ultimate goal is to win a Stanley Cup if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs. With the team that you have, with the amount of money that you spend. E it's pretty much cup or bust every single year from here on out. So it's a high pressure job for a jam. You can't just go in there and sit on your hands for a few years and just ride it out and say, okay, wait till I get my guys in. No, your guys are here. This is the team that you're inheriting, and you need to make it work. Kyle Dubas couldn't. As much as he tried, he walked into a situation that was beautiful. You got a number on overall pick in Austin Matthews. You got a star in Mitch Marner. You got a star in Willie Nielander. You got a stud on the back end in Morgan Riley. You had the premier free agent sign with you back in 2018 and John Tavares. You got your core, and he couldn't make it work. He surrounded them with everybody and their brother. Didn't do anything. As a GM, when I'm when I'm shopping around, because let's let's be honest, Brad's revealing. Is he an enticing GM candidate? I don't know. He kind of had the same situation in Calgary as it was in Toronto. He had a lot of stars, a lot of opportunities. Couldn't really get over the hump. I think they made it to the second round, maybe the third round one year during his tenure. Not much success in the playoffs. A lot of regular season success. He gets the job. My question is, do you think there was a lot of suitors for this job, Tim? A lot of like veteran GMs who looked at this Toronto Maple Leafs job and said, oh yeah, this is a good one. Or was it the case, or maybe they're a little gun shy. It's like, if I go here, I'm just resigned to losing in the first or second round. Cause these guys aren't a good team. Then I have to handle the situation of juggling contracts and what I'm going to do with Willie Nylander, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, John Tavares. All these guys are going to be UFAs in two years. I don't know if, if you're a GM if you're Barry Trotz or Brad Treveeling, these types
2: of guys who are, you know, available. What do you think of this Toronto Leafs job? I don't think it was um I don't think it would be hard to fill that position. There's a lot of ego in GMs. I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way, but you have to want the spotlight. You have to want the pressure. You want to be the head honcho of an organization. You've got to have an ego to want that job. And there's a lot of egos in that group. And and this is probably the biggest one of all, regardless of circumstances. Even when the beliefs weren't good. This is still what they call like the, it's the the epicenter of the hockey universe is Toronto. So, I I don't think it would be that hard to fill that position. And I actually think tre- Treveling or Treleaving or whatever you say it is a pretty good GM. As is Duvis. I don't. We'll talk about that next. But I don't think this was a problem. And I, I don't know what the Leafs are are doing here. But I I don't. He's not a bad he's not a bad replacement.
1: But what makes a good GM? Because is it like getting contracts down? Is it wins losses at the end of the day? What is a successful GM Julian Brisebois in Tampa Bay? If they don't win those cups, he goes down as a massive failure because of the deadline. This guy's giving up tons of draft assets, which I everybody knows on who listens to the show. I don't put too much stock in a first round pick unless it's in the top 10. Everybody else does. So Julian Breezebraugh is trading away first-round picks, which are 30, 31, 32, which do- doesn't mean nothing. But he, if he don't win those cups, Tim, people are just basing him. You mortgaged our future, but luckily they win a couple cups, and life is good. He's the best GM to ever you know, walk the earth. And you look at a guy in Columbus, that Finnish guy, people still scorched earth critique him because he just didn't trade everybody Panera and Bobrovsky mortgaged all his future to bring in stars and then they lose so he's labeled as a failure Breezeball is labeled as a just a success how do you rate GMs Kyle Dubas I thought did a great job at Toronto but he didn't win anything is he a success or is he a failure he's obviously not getting his job back in Toronto they said no thank you kick rocks what's Ooh. Where's the marking on a, on a GM? What's a success and what's a
2: failure? It's hard to say, too, because the GMs get all the blame when things go wrong and very little credit when things go right. And so, like, I, I remember learning this with the Bruins where, like, you win the cup and, and the players appraised and you lose a cup, the GM should have made more trades or signed better players, or not gotten rid of that guy last offseason. So it's not, a, it's kind of a thankless job unless you make like, unless you bring in like the um, Goudreau. Right. And like, okay, that was, that was worth the first round pick. The Hagel was worth those picks. And all of a sudden you, you do, but those are few and far between it's usually the GM's fault when things don't go, go right. Um, I, it's, it's funny because the Toronto for all the things that have gone wrong, I feel like GM was the least of their problems. Like if this is the only move they make this summer is getting rid of Dubis bringing in a new GM and they keep all the same players and don't make any major moves. They've done something wrong. Like you missed the mark here. And so, I like. Let's talk about what Treveling said because he said some really interesting things about the organization. He wants them to be tougher. It sort of reminds me of what um what George Richard said yesterday with the with the Panthers. He's like this running gun stuff is great in the regular season. We can score a ton of goals, but you get beaten by a stronger, tougher, tougher, more physical team in the playoffs, and that's what we want to get away from. So I wonder if this GM will be the the start of the Maple Leafs, hopefully, you know, turning a, a page there.
1: Yeah, so one of his first comments at the press conference was the success or failure of our team cannot just be placed at the feet of four players. Austin is one of the elite players in the world. We're not talking about a good player in the league. We're talking about an elite player in the world. Getting to Austin is a priority. That's priority number one. Okay, so same old, same old. No accountability. Let's 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 spread spread the critique to the whole team. A guy on the fourth line making eight hundred and seventy-five thousand is just as culpable as the first line guy making twelve million bucks. We can't place all the blame at the feet of four players. Why not why not? With great earnings comes great responsibility. Can we say that? If I'm making 10 schmil a year. I'm expected to shoulder some of the blame. I, I don't want, I don't want my fourth line guy, third line guy, fourth, fifth, fifth, D man getting the same amount of blame as my stud, my captain, my leaders. That's what you sign up for you guys. Like that's what you get when you're, when you're a top guy. When I was playing in the show, I didn't take any blame. I was a, Smelt playing on the fourth line if we lost you think the reporters were circling my locker no they didn't care top end guys rightfully so that's your job that's that's what you have to shoulder that's why panarin maybe didn't want to wear the c with the rangers he knows the game some guys like it some guys don't trevealing's coming in and he's just he's making it easy for these guys already i don't like this comment i get it But again, it's just the same old thing. He's trying to just make these guys happy. It's not your fault. It's the team's fault. No, it's their fault. It's just the same old stuff. I did not like this comment whatsoever. It drives me nuts. I I would just, it would be so refreshing if someone came in. And I know we can't because he's a new GM and he has to be careful what he says. We don't want to lose Austin in free agency, this and that. Just come in and say, we need our top guys to be our top guys. That's it. What's wrong with that? They have to be better in the playoffs. And I know you don't want to, you know, make a bad first impression, but boy, oh boy, Austin Matthews is sitting at home going, this guy's in my back pocket. I,
2: I I, don't have to work any harder, right? He said they were already texting. He was texting with Matthews and wants to build a relationship. I think he knew him already. And obviously like the, his main goal, what he's saying here is that he wants to resign Matthews. That's his priority and so of course he's going to say those things like what else would you say in in that you you're telling the world that how much you love him and regardless i mean i i don't think that means that you can't also be tougher and also want to change his game or or round out his game you're if he was signed him 7 years and you and then you're saying that stuff it's kind of like okay nothing's going to change he needs to bring him back first is the first priority and then you figure out how to adjust as a team moving forward i i don't think that those things are mutually exclusive
1: so Elliot Freeman mentioned that Treveling does not want to touch the core four. So if you don't mess with the core four Tim, what what are his plans? What is Brad Treveling going to do with this roster to make it better because you you won one game in the second round. Like okay, you, you got you got a
2: long ways to go to win a Stanley Cup. What kind of things can you do with this roster? <laughs> Well, it has to look at the defense first. Defense and goalies. I think they. I don't know. I, I think they they go with Samson out like next year. He's really pretty good this year, but the defense is where they got exposed. Um, even Morgan Riley, as good as he was, I think taking the pressure off him um, is going to be really important. And then you look at Trevelling's draft and trade history. He loves some, some defense. Listen to the guys he's uh, drafted and traded for. He's drafted Linus Anderson, Kylington, Adam Fox, Kuznetsov, Poirier. Traded for Hamilton. Hamannick, Hannafin, Stetcher, Stone, Mackenzie, Weger, Zadorov, He signed Tanev and Kulak. He loves him some defensemen here. And there's a good, good range of size and physicality and skill and all those things. So that's his that's his M.O. And that's exactly what Toronto needs. So I would think that's where he's going to start. There's a lot of question marks and they have like I don't know. I don't have it in front of me. How many of those are still signed? But they had like nine or ten like NHL caliber defensemen. And you can make it, you know, the case, not all of them should have been starting and they weren't. But I think this is where he's going to address some things this offseason.
1: Yeah, the Leafs, they have some wiggle room there. Gustafson's going to be gone. Justin Hall finally is going to be gone. Luke Shen is going to be a UFA. So there is some moves to make on the back end. But it's just, again, with that core four, the money's not there. Samsonoff's an RFA. He's going to want to get paid. Matt Murray is due to make 4.7 this year. Joseph Wall is on contract. I don't think it's a two way. I think he's on a one way deal. It's going to be tricky. He's gonna he's gonna have to make some moves. There there's a lot of money left up front to spend, but you have to sign. I think seven guys. Like the only people under contract next year for the Toronto Maple Leafs: Matthews, Tavares, Marner, Nylander, Jan Kroc, Lafferty, and Nyes. That's it. That's seven forwards. I don't think you can play with seven forwards. So you're going to have to sign a lot of guys and you're going to need to get some guys to make some, you know, concessions salary wise. I don't think Michael Bunting is going to be back. I don't think Noel Chari is going to be back. I don't think Ryan O'Reilly is going to be back. Those are big guys in the playoffs. You know, this this team could be drastically worse next year and I said it. This year when they made the playoffs, this is the best chance that the Leafs have. This is this is the best team that they will ever ice with Ryan O'Reilly Michael, Michael Bunting, Kerfoot, Camp, Aston Reese, Achari, Matthew Nye coming in. It's downhill from here, you guys. And it is. And Brad Trevealing going to have to thread the needle because there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. If he wants to stick with this core four. Good luck. Good luck. If that's his, you know, objective to keep those guys. I don't see it working. I really, really don't. You you cannot surround them with enough talent to compete in this league, and we've seen it with the top two teams, Tim. You need production from the second, third, and fourth line. You'll die if you don't. You can't. We'll see what happens. I'm excited to see. Kyle Dubas, I think, is getting out at the exact right time. Speaking of Kyle Dubas, his little comment last week saying Toronto Maple Leafs are bust. He's not going to be anywhere else but Toronto. That lasted all about 12 hours. Because he just he was just announced as a new president of hockey operations of the Pittsburgh Penguins. Big time job. Big, big time job. President of the whole organization, in control of everything. This guy's got his fingers in every part of that team. That's what a president of hockey operations done does. He's, you know, the right hand man for the GM, kind of gives him his marching orders. He does everything. He's Brennan Shanahan, but probably better. Because Shana, I think, is just a joke. He jumps in there. Good decision from him, bad to de- him on the rise. They're on the back nine, maybe the back three of this, you know, golf game that we call hockey. What, why, why go to Pittsburgh? What do, why, Tim?
2: It's a project for sure. And like, if there's, if there's a window. It's like a millimeter, it's a centimetre open, you know what i mean like if if it's not closed completely, which it very well might be, and he had this nice comment he goes, the way that I view it, if people want to bet against Mike Sullivan, Crosby, Malkin Latang. go ahead, but I'm not going to do that. I'm gonna bet on those guys, and that makes sense about five years ago, right but it's like ten years ago I know. so so okay, is it a project? Yes, are the stakes pretty high, yes. Yes, because of the window, but I don't think anyone expects them to be contenders. And so in in that way, there's there's not a ton of pressure. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a world-class organization. It has world-class players. It's probably a a lot less media attention, and I'm sure it's something that he would look forward to. But what are you you building toward? Are you trying to win a cup next year? Because you've got these older guys that will be leaving and retiring and slowing down. You've got a younger group that's pretty good in the in the Gensels of the world and the Brian Rust, who I think is a free agent. So what do you yeah, I don't know. What what do you think his goal is? Like what's a realistic goal for this team?
1: No, Rust has five years left on his deal, but he's 31. So he's no spring chicken. Um, I think you have to make one last push. You know, you're coming in with the expectation he met with Sidney Crosby. Had a long talk with him. I think he, he wants to give him one more kick at the cam. You know, they didn't make the playoffs this year, which is unheard of for the Pittsburgh Penguins. I think this is the first year in 73 years, Pittsburgh and Washington didn't make the playoffs. So it's been a while, but I think he sold them on the fact that he can come in, find talent that people really can't see because again, much like Toronto, there's not a lot of money to go around. Yeah. I know they have 20 million to spend, but they only have just like Toronto. I think seven forwards signed, they got to you know, fill out the, the goaltending situation. Are you going to bring back Tristan Yari? There's money to be spent, but there's a lot of holes that need to be filled. So, man, it's such a weird thing. I think he envisions this president job as, okay, I squeeze the rest of life at a Latang Malkin and Crosby, Get get whatever I can out of them, and then I have a little window to rebuild this team. So I think he goes for the cup for one or two years, and if it doesn't work out, Crosby leaves, Letang leaves, Malkin leaves, and then you rebuild this team in your image. You got some good young players, potentially, but I don't even think any of these guys will be around when Dubas gets to the rebuild in a few years. You think they're younger, but they're not. Like Jake Gensel's 28. Rust is 21. Ricard Raquel's 30. There's no good young players on this roster. I think they were the oldest team in the league. Their average age up front is 30. Their average age on the back end is 31. Eh, Not, not going to work, you guys. So go for the cup for the next few years. Trade some draft picks. Maybe you, you make it. I don't think they will. But then you start seeing them making some moves. Jake Gensel on the last year of his contract. I think he gets dealt. Maybe you trade Evgeny Malkin. Maybe you trade a Chris Letang. There's still some value there, even though they're 36 years old. But it's, it's a strange choice for me. I, I thought he would have waited for the Ottawa GM vacancy to open up once Pierre Dorian gets fired this season because the Ottawa Senators are going to be just atrocious again, in my opinion. Um, and then go from there. But he, he didn't. He took the Pittsburgh job. It's a huge job. You're the president of a team. There's only 32 of those in the world. So it's a big deal. But yeah, it was a very quick turnaround for him.
2: Yeah, and he said, so he's going to be um, the interim GM through July. So through the draft, it looks like, well, they look for a permanent GM replacement. So he's kind of elevated this job. And so one of the questions he got asked was about Tristan Jari, who's got an expiring contract. He's a UFA. Do you bring him back or not? And he kind of said, well, I'm going to get to know Jari a little bit. I'm going to watch the tape. I'm going to see what's available, like basically everything. I'm going to unturn every stone and see what makes the most sense for this team. But Jari, he's been pretty good. He's been an all-star, but he's been not great in the playoffs, especially. And when you think of Tristan Jari in the playoffs, you think of him being scored on high glove. It happened over and over again. That's the first thing we, we're all yeah. thinking about. So he's 28. Do you bring him back? You have Casey DeSmith, Smith, who's $1.8 million, but he's a backup. He's not your guy. And so what do you do with him? And he's asked about it, and he kind of said, well, like I said, we'll we'll look at everything, but that's probably the first and most pressing player um, and roster decision he's going to have to address. I think you let him go. He
1: sucks in the playoffs. Like his his goals against against is over three. His save percentage is under eight point eight on average. Hasn't won a playoff series as a as a goaltender playing for a good Pittsburgh Penguins team going back to two thousand nineteen and twenty. So you let him go, and then you then you. Maybe get a goalie in the draft. You pick up some young guy, much like an Elias Samsonov was for Toronto. Decent salary cap hit. And you just go from there. I've said it time and time again. You don't need a fantastic goalie to win the Stanley Cup. It helps if you can get one, if you can snag a Vasilevsky or Shesterkin. But again, I don't think that's where you put the majority of your money. I don't think you get the biggest bang for your buck by getting a superstar goaltender. But look at the guys in the finals right now. Ottinger doesn't make a ton of money. And then you're rolling in with Aiden Hill, you know, Bobrovsky. a backup, huh? Bobrovsky, Bobrovsky, excuse me. Yeah. He is not supposed to be their starter. I think Lyon or Spencer and I could have been uh, maybe Bobrovsky. Yeah, I'll I'll give you that one. I'll give you that one. But I don't think you need a star goaltender to win a Stanley Cup these days. I really don't. So I, I don't think he brings back Tristan Jari. I think he goes out and he finds some talent to skate with Malkin, Lutang, Crosby, those guys. And you just try to maximize your, your, your strengths, which is Crosby, man. The guy's still got it. He's 35. I think he has a few good years left in him. All right. Anything else on these two things, Tim?
2: No, I'm excited to, so the series starts tomorrow. No, no,
1: no, I want, I got one more thing I want to talk about. I just wanted to make sure you're done with Pittsburgh. Okay. I, I just got reminded. I, I brought up Ottawa. Did you see Claude Giroux's comments that he he was um, talking to Pierre Dorian about, saying yeah. how he they will make the playoffs this year if they don't have to wear ties on the plane, and that it, it, yeah. So it, I just saw this. Pierre Dorian was giving an interview and he said Claude Giroux guaranteed me that we will make the playoffs if I relax the dress code a little bit and they don't have to wear ties on the road and at home. I'm just like, come on. There's a that's why I said they have no chance of winning, because if you're banking on making the playoffs because you don't have to wear a tie, like, come on, you guys. Like It's just... I think he's got a point. I think he's right. You're trolling me right now. It's just like Toronto when they say, we want to wear track suits on the road because it's just easier. <laughs> the young, they I don't care what... You, But it doesn't bother me. It's just the fact that they make it a big deal. It's like, just shut up. You guys Just put a tie on. Honestly, look, look good. Put a tie on. It's not a huge deal. These kids and Giroux not even a kid. It makes a lot of sense why Philly never really got over the hump. Only when Pronger was there. That's it. Then he leaves and it just goes down the drain. So good. Don't wear a tie. Don't make the playoffs again. Life will be good. All right. Moving on to the Stanley Cup finals. Finally. We talked to George Richards yesterday. Fantastic interview. If you haven't heard it, go and check it out. The guy is very smart. And thank you, Tim, by the way, for throwing me under the bus saying he works for The Athletic.
2: According to my research, he did. What kind of research? He hasn't worked there for 10 years, he said. Three years. But how about thank you, Tim, for getting that guess? What a a great interview that was. Very insightful. Oh, such a hard get. Right. Such a hard get. But like,
1: you make it. me look You're like not a fool. Up those interviews. I got stuff going on. I got seven kids. <laughs> you dumpster fires. All you do is this podcast. That's it. You made me look like a fool in the first ten seconds. Got Mike Richards here from the Athletic. He's go no dummy. No, I'm not. i just like great. Okay, regroup. Luckily, I'm a pro and I could just work through it. Most guys would have folded like a cheap tent, but I figured it out and then made the best of it. Lemons at a lemonade. Lemonade of lemons. It was a good recovery. It was (sighs) such a, I just felt like such a dummy. Anyways. Well, good insight from him. We're moving on to Stanley cup finals. I want to know what you think you're an expert too. what do you think the keys are for both of these teams to win? What's it going to take for Florida to take the cup? What is it going to take for Vegas to win this cup? And then I want to know your prediction, who you think will win and who do you think should win? And I'll just sit back and listen to this money that you're going to spew on me.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I really liked what George said yesterday when you asked him what the Panthers need to do. And he basically said what they've been doing. Like, just keep doing what they've been doing. And I know it sounds like a simple, almost cop-out answer because it is over simple, but he's exactly right. And so that's what I've been kind of, I've been reflecting on as we think about our predictions for this. They've done everything right. They've won. What's their record? 12 and three, 12 and four. Or, like, yeah. It's crazy. I think it's 12 and four. Cause they? Three in Boston, one in Toronto, nothing in Carolina. So like they just they lost three to Boston. Yeah, game seven. Remember? Oh, they did lose that game seven. They pretty, won. pretty impressive of Boston to force a game seven against this juggernaut team. You know, honestly, it um, is. So yeah, I I think it's them. I I think it Carolina. I mean, um, Florida. If they keep doing what they're doing. And you get that sense too, like the way that they're so relaxed, the way that um George talked about yesterday, they're so confident. They're so at ease. And it's like almost like even in the overtime games, there's there's no pressure. And you kind of expect, like if you go to overtime against Florida, you expect Kachuk to score. Like that's what we've come to at this point. And so as good as Bobrovsky's been, as good as this entire roster has been, I, I do think I really like what Florida's done. That said, Vegas is better on paper. They are a good five-on-five team as well as Florida is. They've got probably a, the deeper roster. They've got some real star power. There's an interesting dynamic, too, where um, March or so and Riley Smith were both players that were released from Florida in the expansion draft in 2017. And so there's like this whole like um, revenge tour dynamic going on. I don't know how important it is to them to prove those guys wrong, but that's kind of a cool dynamic, too. I really like what they've done. Marxist though is like third or fourth in scoring in the playoffs in the last couple of years. Like he's super underrated. That said my pick is Florida. I just, wow. What they've done is just, there's, there's something special happening with this group. And I, I would say Florida, I think Vegas takes game one, but I think Florida wins this in six. Okay.
1: Good to know. I think the keys for me, for Florida to win this series, you need to keep banging. You need Sam Bennett to just be a juggernaut in this series. You need Matthew Kachuk to be driving guys through the wall. You need Ryan Lomberg to just be flying around like a caved man. You need Radko Gudis to be Radko Gudis. If you can't be physically effective in this series, which will be hard because Vegas is no slouch. They got Will Carrier, Keegan Colasar, you got Chandler Stevenson. You have some big bodies on the back end and white cloud and McNabb. You need to make it hard on Mark stone. You need to make it hard on Jack. Eichel. I don't think they've been physically tested this off season. I know Dallas was somewhat physical. Not really. Edmonton is not known for their physical game. And then Winnipeg was a mess. So you need to get in those guys' faces. That's the only chance I feel like Florida has to win this series. Five on five, Vegas is going to dominate them. I think the special teams, as lopsided as the numbers seem right now, I think Vegas has progressed. You know, George made a good point. Their PK numbers are terrible because Edmonton was just, you know, unstoppable on the PP. But if you just get rid of that outlier, they've been pretty steady as she goes on the special teams. Vegas loses. If Florida can affect Mark Stone and Jack Geichel with the physical play, obviously every team tries to do that. I think Florida has the guys who can do it. I think Sam Bennett has shown in every single series, he'll go up and he'll punch you right in the face and he'll bury you. He's been super effective in every single series. He did it in Boston. He definitely did it versus Toronto. He was their worst nightmare. Every single game he was throwing highlight reel hits. He knocked knives out of the series in the last game, just buried him in like the first shift. Matthew Kuchuk is going to do what he does, but it it's going to come down to that physical play in my eyes. Can Florida affect the way Vegas plays? Vegas is an effective team. Vegas wins this series if they just continue to play five on five. They're, they're, they're a dominant team, top to bottom. They have more talent, they have more everything. I I think Vegas, if they just play a normal game, they win. I think Bobrovsky will steal a game. I think Aiden Hill is a very good goalie. I don't think he's going to make many mistakes. How good would it be if he got hurt and Jonathan Quick played? It'd be so great. It'd be so fun to see that. But I just think they just have to keep doing what they're doing. As long as nobody gets hurt for Vegas and they can just stay focused and play their game for as many games as it takes, they will win this series. They get scored on first. Who cares? They come back. They've done it all playoffs long. Just keep it, keep it in regulation, and they'll win this series. So I'm taking Vegas. As much as I want to take Florida, as much as I would love to see that storyline kind of wrap up with the tidy little blow, Florida wins the playoffs and wins the Stanley Cup, and Matthew Kachuk gets to just shove it to Jonathan Huberto and Daryl Sutter and have a parade down Calgary, red the Red Mile. I don't think it's going to happen. I think Vegas is going to slay the dragon. They're going to win the Stanley Cup that they should have won three or four years ago. And it's going to be a great story. And Jack Eichel is going to be redeemed, redemption for Jack Eichel after he was just trashed by me. I, I trashed Jack Eichel for going to Vegas. I i did not hold back. He has completely turned the corner, and he's having a great offseason. So I like Vegas. Even if Bobrovsky's standing on his head, I don't think they can withstand the onslaught that is... Just the Vegas Golden Knights. They're a good team. They don't put a lot of shots on the board, but when they do, they're great a chances. Barbashev having a great postseason. Jonathan Marshall, so you mentioned it. They're, they're really, really well-rounded. When you got William Carlson, Riley Smith, and Mike Amadio on your third line, that's that's a tough third line. I think they're going to eat up Anton Lundell. Or no, they'll probably face off versus Barkov. I feel like they'll eat up Alexander Barkov, Duclair and Verhege. So, I don't know, Tim. I'm taking Vegas. You're taking Florida. Looks like we're at a crossroads. We'll see what's going to happen.
2: Should we bet some breakfast on it? You already
1: owe me like a dozen breakfasts. You're never going to. you got to start door dashing me breakfast. Oh, <gasps> We can't mention DoorDash because we don't sponsor them anymore.
2: It's funny that the one time we had breakfast last year,
1: you bought it for me. Isn't that funny? Ironic. Isn't it ironic? Alanis Morissette. All right, everybody. Well, thank you for listening. Stick around. We got a pretty great interview with Mike Mallott. The pride of Burlington, Ontario. He's fighting this upcoming UFC 289. Check it out. It's going to be a good one. Other than that, we'll talk to you guys Monday. Recap game one and two of the Stanley Cup finals. Cheers. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to dropping the gloves here. We got a good one. A different one, Tim. You know, usually we get fighters from hockey, maybe a boxer every now and again. This time we got a UFC fighter. Completely different realm. I'm used to fighting on the ice. This guy's used to fighting in the octagon. Mike Mallett is here. Proper Mike Mallett from my area, my stomping grounds, Burlington, Ontario, more exact water, water down, Ontario. Nobody would know where that is unless you're from the the golden horseshoe, as we call it. Mike, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us, man. Great, John. How are you? Uh, You know, I'm a a little humbled because before we started the interview, I said, Mike, do you have any idea who I am? And he said, (laughs) no, I don't. And I said, okay, that's interesting. Well, Mike, I used to be a fighter in the NHL. Fought nice. for about 10 years, probably top three when I was playing. 50, nice. 60, 70 fights in the show. I was one of the meaner guys, 6'8", yeah. 270. So I, I can throw down. That out. That's right. Yeah. Bring it, baby. That's what I want now. <laughs> but now I'm an old, an old fart. I got seven kids, and I'm interviewing you. A Jesus,
0: seven kids. You aren't afraid of a fight, eh? No, Uh,
1: they're all girls. So I'm (laughs) getting ready to fight all the suitors who come knocking on the door. So I'm ready to go.
0: Got to stay sharp. But
1: this is not about me. This is about you. Let's get the formalities out of the way. UFC. What is it? Two eighty nine already. They've gone. Mike just cracked his neck. Everybody. He's already scaring me. UFC two eighty nine coming up. You got your third UFC fight. You're going for a three and record in the UFC. You're a stud up and coming Canadian. First and foremost, why UFC? You're a Canadian kid. Why not hockey? Your brother plays hockey. Did you ever have aspirations of the NHL?
0: Oh yeah, man. I think you know. I don't think there's a Canadian kid out there that doesn't have aspirations of playing in the NHL. I just realized pretty early on when I was barely making single A team and barely getting played that it was not in the cards for me. Um, hockey just didn't come to me super na You know, it wasn't wasn't as natural as as some other things and. When I first saw MMA, I, it it clicked with me. And once I started training, maybe it was all in my head, but I felt like I was a natural at it. I felt like it came to me easily. I felt like I understood it a lot easier than other people. It almost felt like a calling. So I kind of had that delusional obsession right off the bat, like this is meant for me and I'm, I'm meant to do this. And so that kind of like guided me through the early years of not realizing that I was terrible at it and, and eventually got pretty good at it.
1: Did you ever, uh, outside of the UFC, because I used to get into fisticuffs as a kid, did you cut your teeth on the street, or was it always regulated, you know, in the gym?
0: It was primarily regulated. I had, like, one or two schoolyard scraps, you know, just you had enough of each other. Kids been picking on you, and you're just, you know, beaking at each other all day, every day, and finally you throw down. And then, you know, I I had, like, one one as an adult but uh you know that one was you know one i couldn't avoid you know not 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 something i i was seeking out at all just you know that was a you don't put hands on women type thing and uh and had to had to stand my ground on that one you know so yeah was, uh fighting a guy who was, who was in the wrong on that so i don't you know i definitely am not like a guy to seek out a street fight at all in my you know the way i see it is like walk a mile to avoid a fight, but once it gets started, I'm not backing down an inch. And uh Ooh, and like uh that. yeah. Thanks, man.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I say the same thing about Tim, my co host, because he is yeah. very sensitive. So if anybody touches Tim, we take care of him because he
2: <laughs> he's very right, Tim? We watch each other's backs, John more <laughs> more so one than the other
1: so I, i'm from canada you're from canada when i was growing up it was daniel cormier it was gsp it was those types of fighters J- uh, joe mcdonald i want to say something mcdonald there were some pretty good yeah. canadian fighters did you model yourself after those guys or who was your inspiration to get in the ufc game
0: or fight okay, game but, sorry mma yeah i mean when i was a teenager i had a, a george st pierre poster like i had i, I bought a bunch of fighters only magazines and, and whatever, you know, I can't even remember all the different magazines, but I'd cut out like fight pictures of fights and put them up on my wall and, and just to have that inspiration around me and try and live in it as much as I could. I grew up in a small town in Waterdown and, uh, you know, we didn't have a ton as far as fighting. We had some traditional martial arts, like some family martial arts, karate, taekwondo and stuff. And I, I soaked up as much as I could there, but I was always like hungry for more knowledge. I feel like almost like being deprived of it. In high school, like made me more hungry for it later in life, you know, where it was just like constantly, I got used to trying to figure out things on my own and ask good questions. And I think that's like a, an asset that's been an asset in my career is like constantly questioning everything. I'm, I'm certainly not like a soldier where it's like, you do this because I tell you to do it. And I'm like, yes, coach, like this is what I do. I'm like, why? I'm like, don't ask why. Just do it. I'm like, no, no, if you can't tell me why I'm not doing it, like I'm the one fist fighting in a cage, you're going to tell me why I'm doing this. And if you can't, then I'm not doing this like, and and maybe it, you know, takes a little bit longer to, to hone skills in that way. Um, but, uh, but uh, I, I I definitely think once you get there, and once you develop those skills, they're a lot more meaningful and a lot more solidified. Well,
1: speaking of why I, I have an interesting question, you Went from 145, 147 a few years yeah. ago, and now you're fighting yeah. at 170. That's a huge yeah. jump. What happened? Yeah. Why the change?
0: So I've always been like a late bloomer. Like I didn't start growing till I was like 15, 16. Like saw our freshman year of high school. So grade nine, I, I hit five feet tall, and then grade 10, I hit 100 pounds. So I was like very small in high school. <laughs> so I went pro in MMA at 19 because there was no amateur MMA around at the time. So that was like the only option to fight. Um, I was 19. I was like even shorter than I was still like 5'11". I was skinnier. So 145 made sense for the first few fights. And then especially as we started doing a little bit more strength conditioning, especially as we started like wrestling, once I started learning how to wrestle and you're, you're picking guys up constantly, I started putting on more and more weight and it kind of crept up on me and uh, eventually got to the point where I was like, there's no way I'm doing 145 again. Like this is dangerous. Trying to make this weight, like through some real bad stuff, in order to make weight. So I moved up to 155. I felt great at that. I fought one fight at 155, and then I took a few years off from competing and just focused on coaching and rounding out my game. Like I was primarily a striker, a kickboxer, and then I started becoming like a, a striking coach at Team Alpha Male in California, which is a world-renowned MMA gym. I'd been down there training for a few years, decided to stop fighting and they asked me to to come on as a coach. So I started coaching a bunch of UFC fighters and I cornered like 20 some odd UFC fights. So I gained a lot of experience in that way. And then I just got like obsessed with the things that I wasn't already good at, like jujitsu and wrestling. So I got obsessed with those and really making my game more well-rounded and, uh, Once once I went back into fighting and like lifting, I started like I'd never really lifted weights much before and only done like calisthenics and stuff like knee jump, knee tucks and pushups and stuff. So I started lifting weights because I was grappling a lot more and I just wanted to be like healthy and and avoid injury and, and also just the like vanity of like i wanted to look bigger <laughs> and then once i once i came back into fighting it just like felt a lot better staying at this weight i'm like it doesn't make sense to go back down to 155 i'm not a small 70 I'm not enormous for the weight but it's also not a massive weight cut for me like i still eat quite a bit even though it's like a week before weigh-ins like i'm still eating a decent amount of food i'm not starving myself to make weight i'm not planning my you know my my training camp isn't based around hitting a number on a scale so i like I feel a lot better at this way, and the weight that I, I walk around at every day—that's the weight I walk in at the cage. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of benefit to that.
1: So, talk about that because I—I I don't know much about the weight cut. Tim doesn't. Tim's a fat slob. When you get on the scales, it'll be the night before the fight, right? You have to hit 170.
0: Yeah. So the morning before the, the the day before, it's like 30 hours. Like we weigh in at nine o'clock, nine a.m. the day before the fight.
1: And then how much – is there a maximum you could put back on before the fight or is it just a free-for-all? It's essentially a
0: free-for-all. So some commissions will monitor, like they'll weigh you in when you get there. And if you're over a certain percentage of your body weight, they'll they'll flag you and say, like, you can't do that again. And if you do, then they'll not let you fight at that weight, which I think is you know kind of smart. Um, but also at the same time, we're all adults. If you want to try and cut 40 pounds, you know – do whatever makes you happy, man. I don't, I don't advise. I don't think it's a good call. I'd rather cut a little bit less weight and feel great going into the fight, but Hey, each their own. Um, yeah, some guys can put on a ridiculous amount of weight. I don't put on a ton because I also don't cut a ton, but, uh, I've fought, like I said, at those lighter weight classes. And when I was that guy who was putting on 25 pounds overnight to get back in the cage, I was sure like quite a bit bigger, but I also felt horrible. Like my muscles feel shot. I'm like, I have no pop in my muscles. I feel like so bloated and like my body just doesn't feel good. I feel way better at this weight.
1: How do you cut 20 pounds to get on that? Like just sauna, sauna, sauna? Or is
0: it all water weight you're cutting? So there's like basically three stages there's like the three to eight weeks leading up to it, however long you have. There's fight week tricks, and then there's night before and day of tricks. So the first is like dieting, depending on how how much weight and fat you have to lose and how how extreme it's got to be or how much muscle you have to lose if you're really cutting, Um, you know, just being negative calories for weeks. Uh, the final week, there's there's tricks as far as like glycogen depletion. So not having carbs and not having things in your body like salt that are going to hold on time because your body needs salt. But there's little tricks like that to like help your body flush water out and you do like a water load so leading up to the fight you drink more and more or leading up to weigh-ins excuse me you drink more and more and more water getting your body used to flushing water out and then you basically suddenly cut it off and your body still thinks that you're gonna replenish that water that you're easily sweating excuse me and flushing out and it takes a while for your body to recognize like oh no this there's not more coming so it doesn't seize up and, and hang on to water but, yeah, that last 24 hours is essentially just sweating it out. So sauna, Epsom salt bath, um, you know, a bunch of different techniques. Some guys like to work out and try and sweat the weight off that way. I don't I don't advise that. I don't think that's the smartest way to do it, but to each their own, man.
1: So when I was in the NHL and I knew I was going to have to get into a fight, which was quite a bit, you know, you fight a lot in the NHL every couple of weeks. I would be a nervous wreck. You know, I, I know I'm going to get in there and fight some guy who's 6'5", 250, and he wants to kill me. I would be up all night, 2, 3 a.m., and I I couldn't handle it. It was the worst part of fighting. What's it like for you? Because you – mine was week to week. You have two months, three months to figure out Adam. Do you know everything about this guy, like what he eats for breakfast? What's your mental state like going into a fight? Like they close the cage and it's just you two.
0: So I like to study guys, which I did for this one, but I'm not one of those guys who overstudies. Like I don't need to know what this guy's favorite color is. Like I don't need to know everything about this guy, right? So I study him. I've watched his fights. I've seen things. Like I've seen enough where I'm like, "Okay, he's good with that. We need to watch for that." And I'm like, "He makes mistakes when he does this. That's where that's what we're going to capitalize on." So those are like or or what are his habits or like what does he continuously what does he tend to lean on or something like kind of obvious that you'll see right away like is this guy right-handed or left-handed? So actually, that's not necessarily... Does he stand Southpaw or Orthodox? This guy stands Southpaw, um, which typically means guys are left-handed, but not necessarily, especially with this guy with how uh, actively he throws his right hand. I have his suspicions that he's right-handed, but it doesn't really matter. Um, But I don't... I'm not watching this guy every single day. I have my coaches watch him more than I do so that they can bring things to the table and just say like hey let's watch for these things this is what we need to to be aware of but at the end of the day it's like this is my fight he's just in it so like i'm focused on myself right like i'm focused on what i'm bringing to the table i'm focused on my weapons i'm focused on what i've been working on for the past basically 20 years and what i bring to the table
2: so mike i haven't watched a lot of ufc fights and i'm guessing for some listeners it's probably true for them as well I'm gonna watch yours next week. What, what do you tell people that haven't seen it before? Like, what should I watch for? How do, how do I help understand and put some context into what I'm watching when I see your fight?
0: Of course, there's like a massive technical side to MMA, and there's there's a you know I could go down this rabbit hole for for weeks. You know, we could do podcast after podcast all day long, and I could mm-hmm. I could I would never run out of things to break down. And I, I'm still learning new things about this sport. But I think one of the most beautiful things about fighting is like. It's extremely easy and accessible for people to understand. Like when you when you watch a fight, for the most part, even if you're not well educated in what's going on, unless it's like a super technical thing on the ground. If you're watching a fight and you think one guy's getting his ass beat, he's probably getting his ass beat, right? Like you, you're probably getting beat up if you're you know if you're on bottom eating shots. You're probably not the guy winning. So, I honestly find that to be like one of the most interesting things about MMA is it, it, it's not. You know, you know. Of course, learning the rules helps, and learning the technical aspects of, of grappling, and and when to be on top, and when to pace, and when to use energy, and when to when to explode, when to not explode, um, and figure out like what's intelligent about a fight. But I love fighting because it's like you watch you you know what's going on for the most part.
1: All right, one more, and then we'll let you get out of here. You got to go do your therapy, whatever you do with your sister. <laughs> we're back in Canada, Vancouver UFC. What can we expect? You know, you're nine and one Adam Fugit Spugget from Eugene. Stupid name. What can we expect out of the proper Mike? What How is this fight going to go?
0: I would say I'm like a fairly analytical person. So I'd say like, let's look at the numbers. I have nine wins and I have nine first round stoppages. So if I'm looking at, history to repeat itself i'm looking at me getting another win and getting a stoppage am i going to knock this guy out or am i going to submit him well i'm a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt on the ground and i came from a striking background and i was one of the striking head striking coaches at team alpha male i have four wins by first round knockout i have four wins by uh first round submission two of which uh, three of which are strangles and three of which are uh limb limb locks so arm locks and then with my, my knockouts on the feet, I have two knockouts with punches and I have two knockouts with knees. So my prediction <laughs> for this fight is I get another stoppage. I think I'm one of the more unique guys in the UFC, as far as the diversity of weapons and ability to finish fights. I'm not a guy who's like a one trick pony. While those guys can be dangerous, someone like a Conor McGregor, we all know he's got a massive left hand, right? And it's, it, it, it that's not to say it's easy to fight a guy like that because he just has a big left hand. It's like, he's really good at finding that the home for that. I'm really good at finding the home for, in my opinion, a large array of weapons. So I think that's a hard person to to prepare yourself for. So I don't I don't really care whether it's a knockout or or a submission. Like I don't I don't care if I beat this guy by strike or by strangle. All I want to do is either have the ref peel me off or have him tap out and ask for for a way out.
1: Tim, have you ever knocked anybody out? No. Have you have ever you? strangled someone to sleep? My little brother when we were little, maybe. <laughs> you strangled him to sleep. What's it like mike to have someone and just like I'm going to you're going to put you to sleep. That's got to be so pow- empowering. It's like I'm it, what is it like when you just feel the whole thing go limp? It's like yeah, suck it.
0: Yeah, like without sounding like an absolute sadist. Like yeah, it, it's a it's a pretty cool feeling like it's not like I'm a bully, it's not like I'm doing it to someone who's unprepared. This is like it be, because it's against someone who knows what they're doing and has spent their whole life preparing to not let me do exactly what I want to do. It's even better. It's like you've put everything into not letting me do this. And I'm still like, I'm still able to beat you. Like, I'm still able to knock you and I'm still able to strangle you. And, you know, there's, I, I like different finishes for different reasons, but submission's one of my favorite things because the person is aware of what's going on it's not necessarily a surprise and they're still like all right man like they tap out and they're like please please stop like i need the third man in this cage to to rescue me essentially so that's essentially that's like why i i really like submissions
1: he's a bad man tim no thanks <laughs> i would not want to i would not want to you know we came when in here i have fully six seven two eighty. i don't want to either but <laughs> no mike i'm like six eight six eight and three quarters but oh, whatever my bad my bad, my bad but I'm a fat slob now, so it doesn't matter. Uh, uh, yeah, this has been a great interview, Mike. I, I don't want to take any more of your time. You got to fight in nine days. It's insane. Every, all of our listeners, I want you guys to watch UFC 289. I know Nunez is there. I know Olivier is there. Who cares? They're bums. Go in there to watch Mike Mallet, proper Mike Mallet from Burlington, a water down Ontario. I'm excited, man. Good luck. And good luck with everything after that. I, I hope uh, you do good things and uh, you rise the ranks. We'll be watching. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Mike, good luck. Cheers, buddy. We'll talk to you after the fight, hopefully. Thank you, boys. Appreciate it. All right. That was Mike Mallet. everybody. Have a good one.
0: Thanks for listening to Dropping the Gloves with John Scott, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode.